Hey, I'm Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at EV. And Michael just told you you're going to get all of the information from a 10-week sermon series in one sermon. So I hope everyone's strapped in and ready to go. Uh, no, but in all seriousness, what we're going to do tonight, uh, under God, is my plan is let's look at some two key moments in Matthew 1 to 7 and recap what they show us about Jesus and then point us forward to see what are the key themes in chapters 8 to 16 in the sermon series we're about to kick off. Uh, so it's going to be a little bit thematic tonight. Let's pray that God would help us to see him more clearly in this passage. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that tonight as we come to your word that we can know that you are the God who speaks. We pray for me that you'd give me clarity, that you'd help me to speak your words faithfully. We pray for each of us in the room tonight that as we hear from your word, you would grow and warm our hearts to love Jesus more. That you would grow our conviction to listen to him, to trust him, and to want to live for him. We pray in your grace that you might give us that great mercy tonight. Amen. Have you ever had something that you are really looking forward to? You know the kind of thing that you plan a long time in advance and you kind of, it's the thing that helps you in the drudgery of your life. In the midst of study, assignments, of work, the kind of everyday life, it's that thing that you look forward to, that you talk about, that you're excited, kind of your hopes and your dreams. And it's that, that thing that's up ahead that kind of gives you that little burst of energy in your day. I know for me, there was one that stands out as a significant thing, and I had nine months to get ready for it. Nine months of planning and hopes and dreams for this particular moment in my life that was coming. And do you know what that moment was? It was splendor in the grass. <laughs> I'd bought my tickets for about nine months in the past, and me and my friends, we spent nine months, you know, doing what you do when you have tickets to a music festival. You're looking up all the different bands, and you're planning your route to see which bands you're going to get to in order to get to the headline acts. Because you can't see too many bands, otherwise you'll be exhausted by the time it comes around to the headliners. But if you, you know, take too many breaks, then you don't make the most of the day. And so we were talking about this moment and looking forward to it and having our you know, Spotify playlist kind of curated around the bands we wanted to see. Have you guys done that before? That moment of anticipation that draws you forward. There's another moment that I can remember that was significant for me and a moment where I should have anticipated something and didn't. I can remember, I, I think I was uh, too old for this to have been excusable, but I think I was maybe 17 or 18, and I just completely forgot my mum's birthday. Has anyone else done that? Forget something important like that? It just sucks. You're like, I, I woke up and I just didn't say anything to her in the morning, and then I realized because Facebook told me it was my mum's birthday. <laughs> and then I like, bought some flowers and took them home to her, and I was like, oh, mum, you know, just trying to make her feel special. But I, I could tell it hurt a little bit. I should have anticipated it, but I didn't. Today we're starting our new series in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew is all about building anticipation for God's kingdom and God's king. It's all about this coming kingdom and this promised king who's going to come and change everything. And the big question that Matthew raises for us tonight as we listen to this bit of his word is how are you living with anticipation for the kingdom of God. Or another way we could phrase that is to say, how are you living as a disciple of Jesus for his kingdom? And even more than that, it actually it forces us to then ask the question, do we even want to do that? Is Jesus worth listening to? Is he worth living for? Is he worth shaping our lives 
around. So we're going to see tonight three different passages that I hope will help us to shape our lives around Jesus. We'll see that he's the promised one of God, and not just that, but he fulfills all of the Old Testament, and that is worth listening to today. So let's get into it. First point, Jesus is God's promised one. See, we live 2,000 years after the events of Jesus, and it's easy for us to forget, but Jesus' audience, who were primarily Jewish, would have been expecting God's promises and waiting for them to come true. Promises to Abraham, like we saw in Genesis 12, just before Easter. This one, I'll make you into a great nation, I'll bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See the promise there? All of the world is going to be blessed through you and your descendants, Abraham. Wow, what a promise. Well, this one to Moses in Exodus 19. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will, listen, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Is that a promise there? A special people of God with intimate access to him that only the kind of priests would have had. He says that's not just for some exclusive special group of people, but everyone who's part of God's people would have that. Or this promise to David in, in 2 Samuel 7. When the time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Do you see there the promise? A coming king from the line of David who will rule and reign God's kingdom forever. An eternal ruler. And, and while there have been glimpses of these prophecies coming, coming true, you know, like Solomon, uh, the king that was after David, his son, and who built God's temple, these promises, for the most part, haven't really come true. And fast forward a couple of hundred years, and... We're now living in a time where God hasn't spoken for a long while. Hundreds of years, they've heard nothing from God, and they're living under Roman occupation, hardly blessing the world through their might and their power. And the king that they have, his name is Herod the Great, and he is anything but great. He's a Roman puppet king, and he's a desperate, anxious, sad, despotic ruler. It was said that it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son, because he kills off his family members. There was so much infighting in his family. Not the kind of king that's going to rule and reign God's kingdom forever. And faithful Israel, they would have been starting to wonder, is God going to keep his promises? Can God keep his promises? And Matthew starts his gospel, and it's so clear that what he wants us to know is that God keeps his promises. And all of those promises in the Old Testament about this person, this king, this ruler, they come true in Jesus. See, from the first verse, Matthew 1 verse 1, look how he starts off the narrative. Come back to Matthew 1 with me. We're going to do a little bit of flipping around tonight. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Hang on, that's Jesus, the line of David, the line of Abraham. Those are the promises that God's been wanting to, 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 show, to make with them, to show them that he's going to keep them in Jesus. See, God's promised eternal king. He was going to come from the line of David. He was going to be the descendant of Abraham to bless the whole world. And what does Matthew put at the front and center of his gospel? That's who Jesus comes from. 
He's showing us things. See, everything about Jesus is designed to show us in this narrative that he's the promised one. We haven't got time to go into all the verses here, but his name, Jesus, it means God saves. He's the Savior. The virgin birth was prophesied about 700 years ago in Isaiah 7. The the place of his birth, Bethlehem, is a prophecy from this one who would be born that would rule the nations in 2 Samuel 5. The massacre around his birth, that horrible massacre that Herod ordered where he killed all of the Jewish baby boys, that was prophesied about in Jeremiah 31. And John the Baptist, who acts as this one to make the way clear for God to come and be with his people and bring justice and rule, well, that's a prophecy as well from Isaiah 40. Matthew's going out of his way time and time again to show us that Jesus is the one promised in the Old Testament. See, you can't understand Jesus rightly without seeing and understanding these promises about him. And I want to zoom in and show us a little extra layer of these promises that are met in Jesus. So come with me to the baptism of Jesus, chapter 3. Set the scene for you. Jesus goes down to Galilee, to the River Jordan, to be baptized. And John's like, whoa, whoa, I shouldn't be be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. He sees something special in Jesus. But Jesus says, come on, let's let's get it done. And so John was willing to baptize him, and he does the baptism. And and what, what happens next in verse 16? The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. This is a special moment. This kind of God-ordained, spirit-filled, powerful moment where Jesus is baptized. And God speaks to those who have ears to hear around. And, and see what he says. He says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Wow, what a statement from God. My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But this statement, it's even nicer than just a nice statement from God the Father. It's deeply theological. This is the statement on which Jesus bases his life and ministry. It's the statement which Jesus uses to help him understand who he is and his role and how he's going to function in his life. See, I want to unpack this together with us. The first thing to highlight from that statement is that Jesus is God's son. You can see there Psalm 2, 7 and 8 on the screen. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. See, by calling Jesus his son, he's saying more than just this is the eternal father and the eternal son. He's calling to the language of the king. Psalm 2, God's promised king is the son of God. And the language of sonship is the language of kingship. See, here is God's word to his king. And what does he say in Psalm 2? The nations will be your inheritance. See, the king of God, the son of God has nothing to fear. Because he's secure in the knowledge that God in all of his power and sovereign control over the whole world will secure him in his role as the king overall. The king has nothing to fear because he rules with power. Whose power? God's power. The language of sonship is the language of kingship. See, here the first thing we see is that Jesus the son is the anointed king. And we see the promises that God says, this one, my son, He's my king, my promised king that I've been talking about. Secondly, it's not just that he's the king. He's the one with whom God is well pleased. See the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
And for the Israel, Israel, for the audience there, this Jewish audience in the first century, this language of being well-pleased, of delighting in, of enjoying relationship with, this is the language of God's servant. See there in Isaiah, Isaiah 42 verse 1. This is my servant, I strengthen him. This is my chosen one, I delight in him. I've put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Do you see there, I delight in him with whom I'm well pleased? It's this language of delight, of being pleased in. It's not uh, word for word the same, but it's the same concept that underpins both of these two different English words. And, And this section of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 to 55, is all about God's servant. We looked at some of those promises last week with Easter, but he's the one who will bring justice and save God's people. But unlike God's son, God's king, the way that the servant does this as we progress through Isaiah 40 to 55, the servant doesn't do it by ruling and reigning over all things, but actually by suffering, by giving up something most costly to himself, his own life. He doesn't exercise the normal means of power to achieve greatness. No, no, it's through suffering, through sacrifice, through giving up his life that the servant actually brings people back to God. He saves the people through the greatest cost, his own life. And so when God calls Jesus the one in whom he delights, the one in whom he's pleased, what he's saying there is that this Jesus, he's not just the king, but he's actually the servant as well. He has this function and role of being willing to give up at his own great cost in order to save others, this promised one of Israel. And thirdly, Jesus is the beloved Son of God. And the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And if you were a Jewish person in the first century, that story that would have instantly come to mind to you is Abraham and Isaac. Look at Genesis 22, verse 1. Take your son, God said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, this is one of the most significant stories about Israel that all the people would have known. Did you see it there? Your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And if you know the story, the sacrifice isn't exacted, but Abraham shows himself willing to make it, to sacrifice the only son whom he loves because he trusts God. See, think back to God's promise to Abraham that the world will be blessed through your descendants. And here's God saying to the same Abraham a little bit later, you've got one son whom you love more than anything. Give him up. Sacrifice him for me. And Abraham's willing to do it because he trusts that God is faithful to keep his promises. He trusts that even, even though he doesn't know how it could, would work out and what God's planning on in asking him to do it, he's willing to do it. And this action shaped the identity of Israel. They looked back on it and they looked back on Abraham as the man of faith because of this moment. The only son of God, the beloved Jesus, when he calls to mind this language of being the one whom you love, it's this story that's in mind. See, Jesus is the only son of God whom God is willing to sacrifice for the sake of the whole world. But unlike Isaac, Jesus willingly goes to the cross and dies for us. He's the beloved. 
See, in the words Jesus hears from heaven, God shows Jesus, the Father shows the Son, how to understand himself. As the King, as the servant, and as the beloved Son. This special relationship with God, the fulfillment of so many Old Testament promises. See, the life, ministry, and death of Jesus is all spoken about in the Old Testament. Jesus is the promised one of the Old Testament. And the great tension that we see developing through Matthew, and over the next nine weeks we're going to unpack this more and more, is how can Jesus be all all these things? How can he rule and reign and bring about God's kingdom, but yet suffer and die like the servant? How can he be the special chosen son of God and yet be killed? How does it all come together? That's the tension, the anticipation that Matthew is calling us to. And it's realities like that that Paul reflects on in Romans 8 when he says that God, he speaks of God not, not sparing his only son for us. Wow. That's who Jesus is, the promised one of Israel. See, why does this matter to us today? We're not Jewish, or I assume most of us aren't. Why does it matter that God keeps his promises from the Old Testament and fulfills them in Jesus? It matters because we today look back on it and we can know that God is a promise-keeping God. God keeps his promises. Yeah? We can trust him. For thousands of years, God's promises didn't come true. But then in Jesus, they did in a surprising and and a way that we could never have imagined them coming true. In Jesus, in his life and death and sacrifice for us. Because of that moment, we can know that all of God's future promises, the eternal hope that we have with God, eternity in heaven with him in the new creation, all of that will come true. Because God is a God who keeps his promises. So you can trust him this week in the middle of whatever you're going through. That he's at work for your good if you love him. You can trust him even when listening to God and listening to King Jesus in your life means giving up something that you don't want to give up. A relationship, something that you're doing that you know wouldn't be pleasing to God and yet you, can't, you kind of find yourself fighting about it. Because God keeps his promises, you can, you can trust him. He is for your good. Life with him, you won't be missing out. God is a promise-keeping God. We can trust him for our security. We can trust him when we're wronged, that even though we're, when we're wronged, we don't have to go and exact justice on our own because God is the judge. He will hold all things to account. We don't have to go and seek vengeance on our own now. We can actually forgive because God keeps his promises. <clears throat> we can trust him when we hear Satan whispering lies to us. Oh, just go out, just sleep with that person, just go and party, just whatever it is for you, the thing that you're tempted to do, that Satan's whispering in your life this week. You can say no because God keeps his promises. You can trust him. He's for your good. You won't miss out because God is a promise-keeping God. He works in ways that we don't expect and sometimes we might look at our lives and think, God, what are you doing? How can you be keeping your promises in this moment? But you can look back at these promises and trust him because he's a promise-keeping God. Jesus is the climax and the fulfillment of all of God's Old Testament promises. And so we can trust him today to keep his promises. But more than that, point two, 
Jesus isn't just the promised one, the king, the servant, the son, but he actually fulfills the whole Old Testament. This is the second point. Look at Matthew chapter 5 with me. Verse 17. Jesus says this. Don't think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. See, the law and the prophets, that's Jesus' way, and that's actually a very common way in the New Testament to describe the whole of the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, uh, it kind of, it's all of it all together. And verse 17 functions as a thesis statement for the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus is just about to start preaching. But it also points us to the reality that actually all of the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus. See, what does Jesus mean there when he says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill? That's a, it's a, a funny statement, isn't it? Well, he's building on his identity as the son of God, the suffering servant, and the ruling and reigning king of all things. He, he's showing us a deeper picture of how the Old Testament actually points to him. See, what Jesus means is that the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, they actually served a deeper purpose than just these individual promises. Their intended meaning is actually brought to fulfillment and conclusion in Jesus. In his work, in the person of his life, in what he did for us. The whole thing kind of comes to fulfillment in him. He's the pointy end of the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, there's actually more going on than just the kind of surface prophecies and promises and and systems that are set up. It's like uh, when Sophie, my wife, tells me we need to talk, right? You know, on the surface, oh, cool, we need to have a conversation. But there's actually something much deeper going on underneath that, uh, and I'll have to prepare for for that. You know, there's surface, but there's actually deeper meaning embedded within what she said. See, let me, let me unpack this a little bit for us. The prophets. What was the function of the prophets in the Old Testament? Well, how did they work? The prophets worked to speak God's word to the people, to, to help the people know God, to hear from him, to listen to him. But then when Jesus comes on the scene, what happens? He is the word made flesh and come and dwelled among us. Jesus is like no other prophet because he is God speaking to us himself authoritatively, finally, and fully, right? And so the whole system of the prophets, of having this voice to speak to us, we don't need that anymore today because we have Jesus. Jesus is the final voice from God. He's the authoritative word become flesh that dwelled among us to show us God's heart, to reveal God's character, and to prove that God is the promise-keeping God. See, prophecy looks different now than what it looked like in the Old Testament because Jesus is the one who fulfilled the prophets. And so prophecy now looks a lot more like speaking God's word to encourage others. It doesn't carry the same kind of weight and authority that it used to. See, Jesus doesn't just preserve the law and the prophets. Jesus doesn't say, oh, yeah, the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, they're still good. You've still got to listen to all of that. But he doesn't just get rid of them. He doesn't just abolish or eliminate all of the law and the prophets. No, far deeper than either of those two things, he shows us how they're fulfilled in him. See, he shows us that he doesn't just get rid of them. He shows us how they were ultimately just pointing forward to him. See, think about the law with me. We thought about the prophets. What's the purpose of the law in the Old Testament? 
Its purpose is to show God's people how to live with a holy God. How to have relationship with a God who's holy and perfect and what that would look like. And so the law, the sacrificial system, the kind of all the commandments, they're all trying to help God's people have a relationship with God. And the system is there because God knows that the people aren't perfect. He knows that they're going to sin. And by sin, it's not listening to God, wanting to do things their own way. He knows they're going to rebel. He knows they're going to fall short, that they'll fail to keep all of God's rules. And so what's the purpose of the law to show us that God is holy? And we actually need a rescuer. We need a saviour. And so the whole Old Testament system, it sits on this value of God saying, okay, let me, let me build a system for you so that when you do the wrong thing and you fail to keep my laws, that you can have an animal sacrificed and that will cover the cost of your sin. But the animal was arbitrary. The animal never actually did anything other than God allowing it to be used in order to forgive us for the way that we've rebelled against him. See, the whole law just points to the reality that we need a saviour. And it shows us the reality that actually in our own hearts, we're not perfect. We we can't be perfect. That's what the law does. It shows us sin and our need for a saviour. And then then Jesus comes around. And what do we see in Matthew 121 when Jesus Jesus is introduced? He's the one who's going to save the people from their sin. He's the one who the whole Old Testament system was pointing forwards to. He's the perfect once and for all sacrifice that means there is now no longer any need for the sacrificial system. No no longer any need for all of these laws which were met and, and showed us our sinfulness before God. See, they're fulfilled in Jesus. Look how Hebrews 10 puts it. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshippers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Do you see that? The law is just a shadow. Just a shadow that points forward to the good thing to come. And And it can't actually do the work of perfecting those who offer the sacrifices under the law. And they continue to offer them year after year, looking forward in hope. But where does it land in? Where does it, where does it find its fulfillment? Well, a few verses later, verse 11. <clears throat> Every priest stands, stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God. See, the Old Testament sacrificial system it couldn't, perf- it couldn't perfect us. It couldn't even forgive sins properly. It was just a temporary measure, but it was pointing forward to the one who could, who sacrificed his life for us on the cross once and forever. Once and forever, one moment. And that's everything you've ever done wrong before God in the past, in the present, and in the future. God knows, and Jesus died for all of those things. Here's a plug for you. Come along to sharpen up. We're going to be digging into these kind of topics and going deeper into the theology of them. I'd love you to get along to that. We're going to be looking at Hebrews. Do you see there how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament? The law was just a shadow of the good thing to come. The forgiveness was temporary, but now in Jesus it's final. The, the sacrifice didn't actually forgive sins, but Jesus does once and forever. 
And now he's seated with the Father in heaven advocating for us. Which means that only Jesus can bring true security. Only he deals with the problem. See, if you're here tonight and you're checking out Christianity, can I say to you, Jesus isn't a moral teacher. Jesus doesn't even offer you a good life, and so come to him and you'll have this nice life with God and good morals and you know, nice family and those kind of things. Jesus doesn't offer you a good way of living. No, far deeper. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and he deals with the problem of our sin and brokenness before a holy God. In Jesus, we find that we have the need for a Savior, and he himself is that Savior. He offers life and forgiveness to any who will trust him. And so if you're here checking out Christianity, that's what you need to check out. Is Jesus the real deal? Can he really offer me that? Do I really have a need for that forgiveness and life? I think the answer is yes. But I'd love you to come and chat more with me if you're in that boat. If you do trust Jesus and you're here tonight and you go, yes, this is true and it's for me, I want to just take a moment to pause and to dwell on the reality of this. One sacrifice, once forever, for you. For you. One sacrifice. Jesus on the cross paid it all. Everything past, present, and future. There is nothing that you can do if you trust Jesus that will separate you from the love of God shown in Christ. You're safe He knows every weakness and failing that you have, and yet he calls you to himself to find forgiveness again and again and again. Continually, he offers it to us. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that God looks at us and sees Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' righteousness. He says to each of us now, because of Jesus, what he said to Jesus at the baptism. You are. And my beloved child, with whom I am well pleased. God says that to you if you're in Jesus. You're his child, you're beloved. He's pleased with you because of Jesus, because of his finished work on the cross. See, he no longer sees our sins and failures, our competing desires and lusts and brokenness. No, he sees Jesus, his perfected work once and forever on the cross. He sees us as we now truly are in Jesus Christ. Doesn't that make you want to live for him? Not begrudgingly, not out of obligation or duty or this kind of, oh, I've got to follow the laws because God wants me to. No, because of Jesus, because of his perfected work on the cross, we're now free and secure to love him, to trust him, and to listen to him. See, the whole Old Testament is looking forward to Jesus. He's like no other. He offers what no one else can. And it's why, third point, Jesus is worth listening to today. <clears throat> Come with me to Matthew 11, last place. Flick across. See, Jesus is worth listening to today. In the verse that was read out for us, 25 to 29 or 30, we get access to this intimate moment. It's Jesus speaking, but who's he speaking to? The Father. And what do we see? He's praising the Father for his wisdom. He's joining with the Father in his pleasure. And he's enjoying his relationship 
with the Father. The intimate, close relationship of a son and a father. That, that's what we're kind of invited into to see in these verses. See, look at verse 27, though, and let us see what it shows us about Jesus. So he says, All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Do you see the authority of Jesus? Do you see what he's saying? He's God's true Son, and there is no way to have relationship with God the Father, except if the Son invites you in. Jesus the Son has all the authority. Without him, there is no hope and no chance of relationship with God. It's only through Jesus. He's the access point for us into the life of God himself, to know God's heart, to know God's love, to be safe and secure with God, to be his child. It all comes through Jesus. He's got all the authority. You depend on him completely. You can't do anything. You can't bring anything. You can't, there's nothing that you can bring to the table except to turn to Jesus. Do you, do you see that? He's got all the authority. And so we need to listen to him. Jesus gives us access to God the Father. And he says you can come and find life in me. But, but he says that you need to do it by trusting him, by turning to him and by listening to him. Do you listen to Jesus? As we get stuck into this next section of Matthew chapters 8 to 16, Jesus is going to have some hard things to say to us. Things about persecution. Things about the cost of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus. About the judgment and sin and the exclusivity of the Christian faith. He's got hard things to say. And as we hear from him tonight, we need to grow our conviction that we want to listen to him above every other voice, uh, to love him above every other love, to trust him above anything else that we might put our trust in, to take him seriously and obey him. So he says this in Matthew 10, 38, Whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Wow. Those are big words. See the cost there? Take up your cross. The sacrifice that Jesus suffered, he says, you'll have to do that too. And if you're not willing to, you're not willing to bear that cost, you're not worthy of Jesus. Those are hard words. But Jesus can say them because he has all the authority. He's God's king. But he's more than the one with all the power and authority. Jesus is also good. He's worth listening to, not just because we should and we, he's the one with the power, but because he's love to us. See, have a look at Jesus' heart with me in verse 28. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, here I think is the only place in Scripture where Jesus explicitly tells us about his heart. And what does he say? That it's lowly and humble. That's amazing, isn't it? See, the word humble here it's, can be translated as kind of gentle or meek. It's this idea of Jesus not being harsh. What's God's heart in Jesus towards you? It's not harsh. It's not easily frustrated. It's not distant. It's not aloof. See, Jesus' natural posture towards us 
is not fingers pointed in accusation, but arms open in love. And the word lowly here, it's got lots of overlap with this idea of humble or gentle. It kind of refers to those who aren't proud, who aren't haughty, who are willing to associate with others that are lower than them. The the people that aren't necessarily the movers and shakers of the world, but they're people that are accessible. See, the point here that Jesus is making is that he's accessible and open to us. That's his heart. That's his disposition towards you tonight is inviting. See, Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, this is a great book. I'd recommend you to read it. He says, For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. There's no prerequisites and no hoops to jump through. Isn't that amazing? Here at the center of what we learn about Jesus is not just his power, but his love. He's a king worthy of all praise and honor, but who is so open to us coming to him. One with authority, but who shows such compassion and gentleness. One that's perfect and never sinned, but yet understands us in our sin and brokenness. He's so welcoming and inviting of us to come to him. And what's the prerequisite there for coming to Jesus? If you're weary or burdened. You don't need to fix your life up and sort out your weariness, sort out all your burdens and sort yourself out so you can come to Jesus. No, no, it is your weariness. It is your burden which makes you able to come to Jesus. It's recognizing that you are weary and burdened which means that you are able to come to Jesus. Your burden is what qualifies you to come to him. Isn't that amazing? There's so much more to say on this passage. We're going to come to it in a few weeks and keep unpacking the rest that Jesus offers. But doesn't this want to make you love Jesus? Doesn't it make you want to listen to him? He's got all the power in the world, and yet he's the God who loves. Isn't that amazing? Our hearts before Jesus are not obligated to love him. It's not, we're not burdened and dutiful as we do it. As you see his power and his love, Oh, it just makes me want to trust him and listen to him and love him. Doesn't it do that for you as well? See, in Jesus, God reveals his heart to us. Isn't he the kind of king that you want to follow? God's promised king who rules and reigns, the son of God who brings us into the family and the servant who sacrifices his life for ours to deal with our biggest problem. That's Jesus, God's king who brings about God's kingdom. Let's pray that we would love him more now. Father God, we're so thankful for King Jesus. We're so thankful for the gospel of Matthew and the way that it points us to see that Jesus is the one who meets all the promises in the Old Testament. We're so thankful that the Old Testament systems of sacrifice and law are fulfilled in Jesus. He was the perfect Israelite and in him we're united to you as our father. We're brought into the family. Father, we pray this week that you would help us to listen to King Jesus, not because it's a burden or an obligation, but because it's a deep joy. Would you keep growing our conviction to love him and listen to him above all, to trust him and turn to him when we do feel weary and burdened? We pray that you would help us to do that this week. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. 
We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.